Fourth, we're, I guess, ready to start, Herman. Um, this is the fourth week. We have one left. Oh, Peter told me I could even take another week, but I'm not. Next week is the last, the last week. And um, you may have some questions, and I don't know that I have answers, but maybe come, uh, if you have some questions, you might want to jot them down. I'll try to have some time uh, next week to uh, deal with questions. Actually, as some of you know who have years ago when I taught a lot, I, asked, I used to ask questions and get audience participation, and we haven't done that in this class. Um, and I won't do that next week either, but come prepared if you have questions. So let's begin. During our study of this little letter, as you know, I have encouraged you to find yourself in this story. And I want to this morning take just a little bit of time and remind you of the story. The story began with a household slave, slave named Onesimus, and we've nicknamed him Moose because it's easier to remember. He was a household slave in the Asia Minor town of Colossae. Moose was owned by and was part of the household of Philemon. And that word, that name has so many different pronunciations that we call him Phil. Apparently his duties gave him access to money or things of value. Phil was a convert to the claims of Jesus Christ, we believe, during the time that Paul spent in and around the city of Ephesus, about a, a three-year period during Paul's third missionary journey, which had been very fruitful. And Paul had stayed in Ephesus for these three eventful years, leaving, we believe, Timothy and John there behind to teach the growing churches in that region. After his conversion, Phil had become the leader of a house church in Colossae, and good reports had come to Paul about Phil's love for all the saints. No doubt Moose had heard the gospel serving in Phil's household, but it didn't germinate. Moose was a thief. He took money or property and ran away. He was a runaway slave, and if caught, he could be tortured or put to death under Roman law. And in fact, harboring a slave was a serious crime as well, a runaway slave. As God would have it, Moose ended up in Rome, where the famous apostle Paul was under house arrest waiting, awaiting a trial before Caesar. Paul was still able to preach and teach and write many of the letters to the early church, letters we now call the prison epistles. But exactly how Moose came into Paul's household in this huge metropolis of Rome, we're going to have to wait until heaven to find out. But just coincidentally, he was once again exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached and taught by Paul, and this time Moose was gloriously converted. During the time, his time with Paul, Moose began to serve Paul in the ministry of the gospel. Repentance and confession took place, and despite his value to Paul for ministry, Paul urged him, and he agreed, apparently, and we're reading between the lines here, I understand that, but he agreed to return to Phil with Tychicus, carrying letters, we believe, for the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the church at Laodicea, which we believe is a lost letter, and one little short, you could call it personal letter, back to Phil, but a personal letter that was clearly intended to be preserved and read by the church there and by us today. That little personal letter, obviously, was not thrown into the fireplace by Phil since it's been preserved to this day. And from that, we can assume Phil succumbed to the appeal that Paul wrote in this little letter. And Paul's personal letter to Phil gives us a challenging example of Christian community, forgiveness, and reconciliation. 
And here we have a vivid illustration of the reality of godly relationships we are all called to as members of one body, the body of Christ. Last week we turned the corner with our brother Phil as we pictured the climax of Paul's appeal to Phil when he read verse 10 for the first time. I, I like to put myself, as I said last week, in the position of, of folks. And this letter was written at one point in time for the first time by Phil. And he's reading this appeal in his buildup, and he gets to verse 10, and in the Greek, the very last word in the Greek sentence is Onesimus. And he, I, I have to believe he was somewhat startled. Now, until now, most of our focus has been on the victim, Phil, on the perpetrator, Moose. Of course, our text today involves both Phil and Moose, and we will still be seeking opportunities to identify with one or both of them if we haven't already. But the focus I want us to have this morning is particularly on our brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing as a brother more than as an apostle. And as we proceed, I want us to consider the opportunities and the obligation we may have in Christ to be reconcilers or mediators of forgiveness and reconciliation. That isn't to mean, I don't think, that we should just go around looking for every dispute we see among brothers and sisters in Christ, people maybe we don't know all that well, and just try to find somebody that we can get involved with solving their dispute. That's not, that's not. But we will have opportunities among brothers and sisters we know well, and we may have obligations when that happens, to serve as Paul served here. I used the terminology last week, the duty of love. I want us to see as we consider our text today, how self-negating is this duty of love. We are called by the duty of love to imitate Christ by taking on debts we don't owe, in order to see our brothers and sisters in Christ be reconciled to each other. And that's what Christ did. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. He paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. What if, like Paul, we are in a small measure called upon to bear burdens that we don't deserve in order that a brother or sister with burdens they cannot bear by themselves may have that burden lifted. This is what Paul did. That is what we are in for. Nancy will get the inside joke. If we give ourselves to the wonderfully fulfilling ministry of reconciliation, sometimes we don't know what we're in for. If we did, we might not <laughs> pursue it. Our text, verses 17 through 20. So, if you consider me, Paul writing, so, to Phil, if you consider me, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Heavenly Father, this morning, by your Spirit, illuminate this passage of Scripture to us and this entire small letter so that we might see what obligation we might have as a result of the duty of love that we carry as part of our calling in Christ to be with one another in this life together in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 17, Paul presents Phil with a difficult argument to overcome. Paul simply tells Phil, So, if you consider me your partner, receive him, Moose, as you would receive me. That raises the question. If you are finding yourself in the shoes of Phil, the victim of theft and disrespect, and probably more, how do you think Phil would or should have welcomed Paul? In other words, if Paul was headed to Colossae to visit, 
and you were Phil, how would you respond? You know, in the way you treated him, in the way you embraced him, in the way you provided him hospitality. How, how would you respond? I trust you would respond with great joy, with great love, with great respect, doing everything and anything you could do to make Paul feel comfortable and accepted fully into your household as an honored guest. And here, Paul is telling Phil in emphatic terms, imperative verbs are used throughout this little passage, in emphatic terms, receive moose as you would receive me. Now let's understand what Paul meant. The precise way that Phil is to receive moose is reflected in the word used here for receive. This is the same thought that is embedded in Romans 14.1 and Romans 14.3 where the person is to be welcomed, not to quarrel over opinions and not to pass judgment on someone that God himself has welcomed. Moose is to be received without remembering his faults or even the wrong he had inflicted on Phil. Paul had, using the same word written to the church at Rome, in Romans 15, 7 again, to speak a word of encouragement that the weak should live in harmony with the strong and the strong should live in harmony with the weak, culminating in this exhortation, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But here Paul is essentially appealing to Phil to treat Moose not just as a member of the household, not just as a slave who maybe you can bring back and let him, let him do something. Don't torture him. Don't turn him into the authorities. But as an honored guest, as you would receive me, Paul. And notice the condition that appears ahead of the appeal that even strengthens this. If you consider me your partner, even though Paul is not invoking his authority as an apostle, he is ratcheting up the force of his appeal to Phil. The word partner here functions to describe what Paul referred to in verse 1 when he just addressed Phil. Fellow worker. And in verse 6, sharing of your faith. Paul and Phil were both in the same business. The business of a mutual participation in kingdom ministry. This business, this kingdom ministry was in the Lord, as the end of verse 16 has, has already uh, referenced to us. Paul was no doubt held in high regard by Phil. I don't think there's any question about that. But Paul is making it clear that continued partnership with Phil in the ministry will depend on Phil adjusting his actions according to the demands of the gospel that transforms every human relationship when we are in Christ. Paul is not saying, no, misunderstand. He's not saying, now, Phil, this is a test to see if you're really my partner in the gospel. That's not the sense in which this if in this uh, sentence is being uh, spoken. In fact, the way the language should be read here is that Paul assumes Phil is his partner in the gospel and assumes Phil will act accordingly. But the if is still there. Paul considers a slave, Moose, as a critical bridge that links Paul's relationship with Phil. Their mutual involvement in Moose's life becomes one of the criteria through which Paul and Phil can together participate in gospel work. The way Paul appeals to Phil here elevates Moose's position and Moose's dignity. Can you see how seriously Paul takes his role as a means of reconciliation between brothers? And I ask that question pointedly because I've asked you to find yourself in this story. And if, because of godly relationships that you have and your connection with people, you are called by the duty of love to be the kind of reconciler Paul was called to be here, will you be this serious about it? Paul's spiritual logic, once we accept the truth that we are one in Christ, which is the truth, his logic is irresistible. 
if Phil would not receive Moose as he would receive Paul, he would be denying the reality of the bond of love, the duty of love, which makes all of us members of one body in Christ, one in Christ. Paul's appeal here is urgent. Godly relationships are urgent. And here this urgency is increased by the treatment that Moose might expect if Paul's appeal is rejected. For Moose, the results could be severe and harsh. Masters had the power, the power, the authority, both in Greek and Roman law, to torture their slaves when they misbehaved or ran away, even to put them to death. What Paul is asking Phil to do here was unusual in the natural world of first century Roman Empire, but it was consistent with the witness of Jesus Christ in Phil's life. This demand, created by the duty of love, is a challenge for the Phil's among us here this morning. Torture may not have been on your mental agenda when you came here this morning, relating to those who have mistreated you, abused you, or stolen from you, or offended you in some less significant way, but it's very significant to you. Maybe torture wasn't on your mental agenda for them. But forgiveness? Not only forgiveness, but forgiveness and hospitality? extended to the perpetrator of the offense as an honored guest? Wow. Verse 18 adds another wrinkle that I want us to bring to the front of our minds. If he, Moose, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account, Paul says. Covering any possible, but you don't understand, objection. You know those objections? But you don't understand those objections? covering any of those but you don't understand objections that Phil might have had, Paul promises to bear any losses Phil may have suffered. Personally, I don't think the if at the beginning of verse 18 was intended to express a hypothetical situation. There, there are some differences of opinion among commentators on this, but the majority of them, and my belief praying about this and looking at this carefully, is that this wasn't and if that expressed a hypothetical situation. There could be differences of opinion. My understanding is that it must have been the case that Moose had wronged Paul and did owe Phil something. <clears throat> As one writer has replied to it in any interpretation that would try to indicate Moose might not have wronged Phil, it would be very odd if he, Paul, knew that Philemon had no grounds for complaint. So to remove this potential obstacle to reconciliation, Paul himself undertakes responsibility for a debt he did not owe, asking Phil to charge it to Paul's own account. Now, at least three questions came to my mind. Maybe it's just my strange mind, but maybe to yours. First, do you think Paul was serious about this offer? Was it just a rhetorical flourish? Or, second, if so, should Paul have taken on Moose's debt under these circumstances? I'm sure you can come up with good arguments why he should not. Should he have? And third, do you think Paul really expected to be taken up on the offer to pay Moose's debt? Well, let me <clears throat> deal with some answers to that, those questions. In answer to the first question, I have no doubt Paul was serious. I have no doubt. Uh, second, I'll give Paul the benefit of the doubt since I don't know all the, on the second question, I don't know all the circumstances that Moose found himself in. We just don't know. I could speculate. Moose was absolutely flat broke, could not repay anything owed for his theft and his malfeasance and his running away, causing no doubt all kinds of adjustments in Phil's household. But I'll give Paul the benefit of the doubt on that one. There was good reason for him to be willing to take on the debt. I can conceive of some circumstances in which in Paul's position, the duty of love might compel me to take on someone else's debt. I think you can probably conceive of some such circumstances yourself. 
And the third question, I don't think Paul could predict Phil's response. He was certainly hopeful that Phil would forgive the debt, not for his own sake, but for the sake of Phil's relationship to Moose. Forgiveness to bring glory to God by imitating his son who took on debts, including ours, that he certainly did not owe. Some have thought that Paul's taking on the debt owed by Moose could pave the way for Phil to free Moose, to return to Paul to serve him. This would also provide an image of what Jesus Christ's work on the cross did for us. He freed us from tremendous debt and burden and all kinds of weakness to serve him. Verse 19 gives support for the thought that Paul is very serious about taking Moose's debt as, as his own and for the thought that he did not know what Phil's reaction might, would be because at this point, Paul takes the pen from the hand of the person he was dictating the letter to and writes in the formal legal language of a surety under Roman law, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. Our text today, is, I mentioned this earlier, is dominated with imperative verbs directed from Paul to Phil. Receive him as you would receive me and charge that to my account. And then in verse, then verse 19 inserts an emphatic multiple use of first-person pronouns, I, Paul, together with the emphatic first-person possessive pronoun, with my own hand, and I will repay it. There can be no doubt of Paul's very serious requests of Phil on behalf of Moose. We don't know what loss Phil had suffered exactly, but we do know Paul was serious about making it right, removing any but you don't understand objections. And if that was not enough, Paul parenthetically stated as though payment of Moose's monetary debt might not be enough to say nothing of your owing me, Paul, your own self. I want to talk about that a minute. That last parenthetical statement takes us back to the world of godly relationships in the body of Christ. Paul is reminding Phil, his own son in the faith and his own brother in Christ, of their relationship in Christ. Just in our text this morning, we, in, not to mention all the mentions of relationship that have occurred in the first 16 verses, just this morning in this text, we see Paul emphasizing the reality of their relationship in at least three different ways. Partner, spiritual father and brother. An easy argument could be made that Phil's obligation to Paul far exceeds the losses he has suffered at Moose's hands, whatever they are. Paul's claim on Phil as the means of grace whereby Phil was reconciled to God can never be quantified or repaid. Phil has double obligations here. First to Jesus Christ, and secondarily to Paul as the means of grace whereby he, Phil, came to be really alive. Eternally alive. Paul's reference to Phil's conversion is a reminder of, his, of Phil's undeserved pardon for sin received freely by God's grace. Phil is reminded that his own debt has been paid fully with no work or payment by him, Phil's challenge here is our challenge when we find ourselves in Phil's shoes. Can we forgive the small debt owed to us by a perpetrator of an offense, whatever it might be, in light of what we have been forgiven by the work of another, our elder brother, Jesus Christ? Here by saying to say nothing of your owing me your very self, Paul is, in an interesting way, and for purposes of making his point, reducing Phil's status to that of Paul's slave. Do you see that? So Paul's argument is like this. Phil, if, 
I don't insist that you are my slave because you owe me your very self. You shouldn't insist that Moose is your slave. Now, that's not in the text, but that's what's implied. Paul used the truth of justification by grace alone to point Phil to the duty of love between brothers in Christ. In verse 20, Paul continues the language of relationship. He begins with, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. I, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you can sense and feel the warmth of that communication, but it really is. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Paul, Phil was Paul's son in the faith, yet he appeals to him as a brother, as an equal. Moose was a poor slave, yet Paul solicits forgiveness and reconciliation for him as if he were seeking some great thing for himself. By the selfless example in this little letter, we are all encouraged to do what gives joy and blessing to the hearts of others in the body of Christ. Paul, as reconciler, is urging Phil to think and act in light of their mutual relationship in the family of God. And in that word, yes, that begins this verse, uh, it puts even more emphasis on this string of imperative verbs, receive, charge, refresh. And yes points to a, a positive response from Phil. Yes, yes. It provides an affectionate note to Paul's appeal, can, and I hope you can hear it. Yes, brother. When Paul writes, let me have some benefit from you, he's once again identifying himself with Moose. Do you see that? In making his request known to Phil? I want some benefit. Now, in reality, whatever honor, whatever capital Paul possesses in Phil's economy is made available to Moose. And by reintroducing lordship language here, Phil is reminded that he also has a master in heaven. Colossians 4.1 tells us, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And verse 20 ends with, Refresh my heart in Christ. Another imperative verb. Paul is drawing on what he pointed out to Phil in verse 7, that Phil was known by Paul because he had been the source of refreshments refreshment to the saints. Using this imperative verb, refresh, Paul asked for the same benefit from Phil that Phil was known for providing to other saints. The impact of Phil's decision on both Paul, the reconciler, and Moose, the perpetrator, becomes clear. Paul will receive pleasure, refreshing, if Phil says yes to Paul's appeals. But see this, Paul has so identified himself with Moose that it is, it is the proper treatment of Moose that will bring Paul pleasure, not the fulfillment of Paul's own desires. It's Phil's proper treatment of Moose that will bring him pleasure. Paul's very heart was Moose, his son. And so to refresh Paul's own heart is to refresh Moose. Uh, the commentator that I've used quite a bit in study for this uh, teaching, this little letter, uh, David Powell, ties the hearts together in a wonderful summary. And I, I think it's in your notes. With this third and final appearance of the word heart, Paul's argument has reached its climax. Since Onesimus is Paul's own heart, verse 12, and since Philemon is said to have refreshed the hearts of all the saints, Verse 7, Philemon has no choice but to provide a proper reception of Onesimus. In other words, my heart. Verse 20. It's been said, and you know it's true, from the world we can expect trouble. Probably most of us here can identify. Where can we expect to look for comfort and joy? except in life together with one another. The greatest joys 
I'm gonna get a little personal here. The greatest joys that can be experienced by someone sharing the gospel are the fruits of obedience and joy in the people who receive that ministry of the gospel. Uh, I personally can witness to the incredible joy when someone hears the word taught in this class and testifies that God used the taught word as a means of grace to increase their Christ-likeness. And I don't mean simply, I hope I don't take to heart, I, I appreciate it when you say I really enjoyed the teaching or words like that. I don't mean to demean that at all. Those are kinds of encouragement that are, are refreshing. But I can tell you how much more joy and how much more refreshing it is to hear that someone is challenged by the teaching of the word to forgive someone and then does forgive someone and I learned, learn about it, even if it's from a third party. I experience joy. Any minister or teacher would experience great joy. If someone hears the word and as a result asks for forgiveness in humility, and I learn of it, I'm blessed. And as application of the taught word results in reconciliation and I learn of it, there's nothing to compare to the joy I experience as a result. As we show compassion and mercy to one another, we should know that the very heart of God is made glad, along with the very heart of those who bear responsibility for our souls. So it is that Paul wants to have some benefit from Phil in the Lord, but the benefit is for Moose. But Paul, his father in the Lord, considers it a benefit to himself. As Paul was called to be a reconciler, imitating Christ, Moose's blessing <clears throat> was Paul's blessing. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. You, you, you can pass over little verses like that and just kind of say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Do we suffer? If one member is honored, and some people do empathize and get into someone else's suffering. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you find yourself, when you see someone else honored, is it your experience of rejoicing that someone else is honored? That's what godly relationships are about. Paul's appeal here the whole appeal is framed by in Christ, verse 8, and by in Christ here in verse 20. Framed by in Christ, in Christ. That, this tells us the truth about who we are. Jesus' prayers are always answered. Anybody disagree with that? Jesus' prayers are always answered. I want you to hang on to that including his prayer on the night he was betrayed. Here's part of Jesus' high priestly prayer recorded in John chapter 17. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And then, later in the prayer, extending his prayer toward Paul and Moose and Phil, you and me, Jesus continued, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And now we see why. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Paul believed this prayer would be answered. Do we? Okay, let's apply this. First Paul, uh, the pastoral reconciler, the title I decided to put on this little section. Now, before you let the title of this section and the use of the word pastoral give you the impression that you should not find yourself in Paul's shoes, 
I should clarify what I meant by pastoral. There's a sense in which all of us are to pastor and shepherd one another. I'm not talking about the office of pastor here. But there's a sense in which all of us are called to care for, as a shepherd, one another. And I believe it is in that sense that Paul was used in the story being communicated in this little letter. He took pains to say, I'm not speaking as an apostle. I have the authority, but I'm not speaking as an apostle. He wasn't even speaking as the founder of the church at Colossae. He likely never preached or taught there. He didn't have that office in the little local church in Colossae. In fact, Phil was the person, as best we can tell, who functioned in the role or office of pastor for the church that met in his house. We can get hung up sometimes on titles. I don't want us to do that. We are all called to love one another. The kind of love that we are called to act out toward one another has accurately been called love without an exit strategy. There's a wonderful little book written by Paul E. Miller entitled A Loving Life. He also wrote a book called A Praying Life that I also would commend. But in his little book, A Loving Life, Miller uses the book of Ruth in the Old Testament and the story told in that book to illustrate biblical steadfast love, the kind of love that we are called to pursue as members together in the household of God. The Hebrew word that he deals a lot with in that little book has said, and I'm not pronouncing it correctly, I don't know Hebrew. But that Hebrew word has said is prominent in Miller's book. It's a word translated in different ways from the Hebrew, but very often it is translated steadfast love or loving kindness. Let me quote, for, and you have this quote from Miller's opening paragraph about understanding has said love. He says, sometimes hesed is translated steadfast love. It combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is a one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. If you've had an argument with your spouse in which you were slighted or not heard, you refuse to retaliate through silence or withholding your affection. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is a stubborn love. Hopefully, as a biblically informed Christian, you have some understanding of this concept of hesed love in the context of a marriage between believers. Unfortunately, as statistics will show, many professing believers have not adopted that understanding of love, love without an exit strategy, even in the context of marriage. But let me challenge you that this kind of love without an exit strategy is not limited to the relationship of marriage between believers. This kind of love without an exit strategy applies equally to the love with which we are called to love each other. In the case of Ruth, the word was used over and over again to describe a love between Ruth, a Moabite, and Naomi, a child of Israel, who was her mother-in-law when the son and husband were no longer in the picture. The word hesed describes faithful love in action. I don't have, it in, don't have it in my notes, but it came to mind just now. You remember what Ruth said to Naomi, and I can't quote it perfectly. Your people will be, your God is my God. Wherever you're going to go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. This is when her mother-in-law was saying, go back to Moab, go back to Moab. You have family there. You, you know, no, no. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. This is the kind of loyal love that is shown by God for his chosen people, Israel. This love is loyalty to the commitment that comes with being one in Christ. This was the kind of love that Jesus was describing in his high priestly prayer that we read a part of. 
Alex Montier has described this covenant love as combining the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. Combining the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. The hymn, Here is Love, captures God's love perfectly in a way that we are to imitate as we imitate Christ Jesus. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Our response to God's love and our response to the sacrifice of Christ is to love one another as Christ first loved us and gave himself for us. You'd have to agree, I think, that Paul took an intense interest in his own role in the affairs between Moose, the runaway slave, and Phil, the offended master. But Paul's focus did not point to an obsession by Paul with Paul's self-interest. Instead, his careful communication has as its goal Phil's reconciliation with Moose in a higher and better relationship as more than a slave. Amazingly, Paul, a man with significant power, was willing to risk his own reputation and exhaust his own political capital for the sake of the runaway slave Moose. Paul is even willing to stand in Moose's place and pay his debt. In this letter, Powell writes, Paul launches a personal argument as he considers his own self as the basis for his appeal to Philemon. For an apostle who has demonstrated his skills in launching a series of theoretical ar arguments and often emphasizes the significance of individual responsibility in other letters, this focus on himself can only be interpreted as an expression of his pastoral heart and the deep conviction to be immersed in the caring for his own spiritual son. You and I are called with Paul to move away from the role of an objective observer and to allow ourselves to be used, used in the middle of the story, giving space for God's love to be shown through us. Paul's work as reconciler was not accomplished by authority, but by putting himself on the line in love. This is what Paul did. Are we called to do any less? Find yourself when it's appropriate in the role of reconciler. Be a reconciler with the grace Paul had. Why become a reconciler? I read a, a wonderful little sermon that answered that question better than I can. And I, uh, this pastor from a church in Flagstaff, Arizona, he, that I found this message about godly relationships online and after describing the realities of slavery in the Roman Empire he went into some detail about that this pastor taught this if Paul could persuade Philemon to forgive this slave who had wronged him and even more to accept him as a brother in Christ the word would spread like wildfire when people asked why did Philemon forgive this slave they would hear because he follows Jesus who taught his followers to love one another. The potential for the gospel and the glory of God was great. It is no different today. The world is watching the lives of Christians to see whether they really are different because of the gospel. Godly relationships glorify God and demonstrate the reality of the gospel in our lives. The second uh, application point is really building on the first. We're called to imitate Christ by mediating forgiveness. In another of his letters, Paul reminded all of us to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. And so we should imitate Paul's example of a committed, selfless brother in Christ taking on the debt of a thief humbling himself to stand in the thief's place and extending himself by becoming a bridge over the broken relationship between Moose and Phil. The imitation of Christ in Paul's example is unmistakable. Any audience who read this little letter 
beginning with Phil and the church that met in his house to today would be reminded of Paul's description in another letter of the incarnate Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul also reminds us of Christ with the language of redemption in verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. The willingness to redeem the debt of a slave reminds us of Paul's description of Christ in Galatians um, 3, 4, 13 and 14, where we are told Christ became a curse for us so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul's model in his dealings with Phil and with Moose is a Christ-like model. Keep this in mind. This applies to me, you, everyone here, everyone who calls themselves by the name of Christ. Forgiveness always forgives a debt. A few years ago, Alexander Strauch spoke in our church on biblical eldership, the title of a book he wrote. And then in 2006, Pastor Strauch wrote another book, which... I commend this to you as well, Leading with Love. It was directed to anyone in a leadership position. It wasn't limited, though, to pastors or teachers. It was limited to people in the body of Christ. And in a chapter entitled Managing Conflict in a More Excellent Way, Pastor Strauch writes about peacemakers. What he says describes Paul's efforts well. Find yourself in this description. Embrace this description for yourself. Peacemaking is hard work. It takes a lot of wisdom and self-control. It means putting the good of others first. Denying themselves, peacemakers make every effort to guide those in conflict toward constructive solutions, justice, and Christian reconciliation. Sadly, they are often misunderstood and maligned as compromisers and people-pleasers. One such leader stood up and publicly declared, it is time to wage peace. Waging peace is hard, self-sacrificing work, but it must be done. Paul could correctly say to Phil, to say nothing of your owing me your, your own self. How much more can Christ say that to us as he commands us to forgive others as we are forgiven? We are all sinners redeemed from the slavery of sin. We were we are each called to extend this same grace by taking the place of brothers and sisters around us by being reconcilers, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives. Our very lives should be a proclamation of God and the gospel. <clears throat> if you found yourself in this story by seeing the truths of this story in your life, if you've seen these truths, in these truths, situations involving people close to you, then you know that there's a price tag. There's a debt. There's a cost to forgiveness. Whether you're the victim called to forgive, the perpetrator called to return and ask for forgiveness and bear the consequences, or the reconciler willing to bear the burden of facilitating and even taking the place at times of the wrongdoer, there is a cost. There is a price tag. There's a debt to be paid. Forgiveness always involves forgiving a debt. The debt, the cost, the price tag is usually called forgiveness. This debt, this cost, this price tag is usually borne by both the victim and the perpetrator. And as we can see from Paul's intense identification with Phil and Moose, there's a price tag for the role of peacemaker as well. But oh, the reward. Oh, the reward. John MacArthur, in introducing his teaching based on this letter, summed up his lesson, living lesson on forgiveness with this quote that I'm going to end with. Of all the human qualities that make men in any sense like God, there is, none is more divine than forgiveness. God is a God of forgiveness. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, God identifies himself that way. Verse 6 says, 
Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, This is the Lord speaking of himself, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He says, I am the God of forgiveness. That's who I am. Solomon said, it is a man's glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 19, 11. Man is never more like God than when he forgives. Paul mediated forgiveness in light of Christ's example. I suspect all of us here at some point in our walk will be called to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive my stumbling efforts to mediate these truths that I need to hear so much for myself. How many opportunities have I missed? To serve or be used in the capacity that Paul is here uh, used in. Lord, as we, we focus on Paul, it's very easy to pass by these opportunities. It's, it's painful to be in the middle of someone else's dispute. It requires great thought, prayerful wisdom derived from your Holy Spirit. It requires a willingness to be labeled in ways that we don't like to be labeled. Lord, very often you put us because of the closeness of our relationship with each other in a position to be used uniquely as Paul was used. May this little letter be a model to us of how careful, how prayerful Paul must have been and but how very much your Holy Spirit came alongside and empowered him with compelling words to encourage his brother, Phil, to forgive his very son, Moose. God, may we find our, when we find ourselves, not if, when we find ourselves in this position, may we be bold enough and courageous enough and diligent enough to expend the effort required to serve you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <clears throat> you.